This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splant. Thanks for listening. Today's topic is relating to interstitial cystitis. What is it? What are the different treatment approaches from a urology standpoint, as well as a physical therapy pelvic health standpoint? My guest today is Dr. Lisa Stout. She is a board-certified urologist and was the first female urologist in the state of Utah. She went to medical school at George Washington University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and then had her internship and residency at Kaiser Hospital Foundation in Los Angeles, California. She has a general urology practice where she treats both men and women, but has focused recently on female bladder incontinence and prolapse issues. She uses a revolutionary laser for vaginal atrophy and other urinary issues with great results. She is currently working for Granger Urology with practices in both Murray and Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Madison. Thanks for having me. So what I was thinking we could start out with is having Dr. Stout just discuss with our listeners just kind of the basis of what is interstitial cystitis. Okay, well, that is a very good question because no one really knows for sure. Um, I think a more accurate name for it would be painful bladder syndrome, because we think that there are more things that can cause pain down down in that area. Um, But I guess the hallmark would be bladder pain or pelvic pain and urinary frequency and urgency and pain that is relieved with voiding. So people often may have pain as their bladder fills, and they can actually tell me they feel urine going into their bladder. And once they're able to urinate, the pain can improve or decrease. Right. So it's a a difficult um, issue to diagnose. And mainly, I call it a diagnosis of exclusion because we need to make sure they don't have anything like a urinary tract infection or kidney stone, or urethral diverticulum, or um, endometriosis, things like that, before we just call it this painful bladder syndrome. Now, is there a difference in diagnosis specifically between painful bladder and then the formal interstitial cystitis diagnosis? I don't think so, uh, because we treat them all Uh, similarly. uh, Again, we need to make sure they don't have an infection. Just for instance, I got a call, an emergency call from a patient two days ago saying, I think I have interstitial cystitis. It burns when I'm urinating and I have so much pain, bladder pain. I couldn't sleep all night last night. And I said, um, she had turned in a urine culture uh, two days before that wasn't back yet. But and started on antibiotics. But luckily, when we got the culture result back, it came back positive. So I could calm her down and tell her, no, I think you just have a bladder infection. We're going to treat you with some antibiotics. Great. And then my understanding too, with um, achieving kind of that formal IC diagnosis is a presentation of Hunter's lesions. Has that idea changed or is that still um, the idea of what can cause the pain with IC? And will you describe kind of what Hunter's lesions are for our listeners? Sure. Um, They're named after a Dr. Hunter, of course, from 
uh, in the early 1900s who characterized them. But when we look in someone's bladder, we'll see these red, I call them stellate, but they almost look like a starburst lesion. And they usually occur on the top or the, near the dome of the bladder, and they usually have a few. And the theory is that the inflammation is what causes these and treating them by fulgurating or burning the lesions with electrocautery actually can help improve the pain. And I've seen it time and time again. Uh, most of the patients who we characterize as painful bladder syndrome do not have these Hunter's ulcers, but there is a small category, subcategory of women who do have these and some men and treating them can actually help improve the pain. We have definitely seen a small category of patients who get a stiff, contracted bladder that does not stretch and extend like it should, but the vast majority of people have a normal capacity bladder. Would you say individuals that present and actually have the Hunter's lesions, are their symptoms more severe than maybe the individuals that do not have those lesions? Um, by and large, Possibly, yes, but I do definitely see that they have significant relief when we treat these lesions. And so it does give us something to actually focus on when we're treating the lesions. Um, but people, um, people without the lesions definitely can have the pain and the symptoms as well. Great. And so you kind of described what many patients complain of, like you had mentioned, increased frequency. I know a lot of the patients that walk into my office, you know, it's inhibiting their sleep through the night because they have so much pain and frequency at night. Um, they'll come into my office and, you know, while they're filling out paperwork, they need to use the restroom. They need to use the restroom um, when they um, are in the middle of our evaluation. They, you know, so in the clinic within an hour appointment, they've tried to use the restroom maybe three times. And um, sometimes when they are trying to avoid, not very much comes out just because of how irritated that bladder is. Um, what other symptoms have we not talked about that you find many patients complaining of when they're in your office that makes you think, hmm, maybe this is painful bladder syndrome? Um, they often will have pain with intercourse. That's a big one. And I think that's where you come in a lot, but because we're big fans of pelvic floor therapy from our devoted physical therapists, because I think it makes a really big difference for them. Um, sometimes they may have pain with bowel movements. And usually if they have pain with, ur with urination, it kind of leads me to think away from interstitial cystitis, because usually they don't have pain with and during urination, it's before and then alleviated after for most of them. And certainly frequent urination. And I think at night, because when people are lying down and they don't have as, ma as many things to distract them, they can concentrate more on their bladder and that's why it can become more irritating as well. Definitely, I kind of associate it with that like, that itch. You don't really realize it's there until you're not doing much. And then your brain really just focuses on that and you just can't stop itching. Exactly. Exactly. So, and that kind of goes into when we're treating interstitial cystitis, um, because of the way the symptoms are, we don't just do one treatment and say, Hey, you know, take this medication and you'll be better. Uh, we have to do 
I call it multimodal therapy, where we use um, different behavior modifications, like avoiding certain foods, certain drinks, like spicy and alcohol. Um, citrus can be a big stimulator for some people. So we have them um, be aware of what foods that they eat or drink that may flare their bladder. And not everyone is flared by uh, foods, but we at least make them aware that it can be. And then um, there are some over-the-counter medications that we might have them consider, like uh, peridium to help calm their bladder down, or something called Prelief, which is a medication to actually help take the acidity out of foods if they want to eat like their tomato sauces and things like that. And then, then we go into medications that we use sometimes, um, sometimes uh, medications to help with anxiety and with allergy, because we don't really know, is there an allergic component? Is it autoimmune? I think nobody really knows for sure, but we try to um, hit um, treatment from those areas and then often refer them to pelvic floor physical therapy, because I think when they're having this pain in their bladder and in the um, nerves around the bladder, the pelvic floor contracts kind of as a defense mechanism and it gets tight. And so because we don't really know how to stretch and, and lengthen our bladder floors, that's why I tell people you need to go see our friendly female pelvic floor therapist. I do have them try to soak in the tub too and tell them it's kind of like a heating pad or if they want to use ice down in that area. But that's where you come in. Perfect. So I know a lot of patients that come in, we're thinking that that's the diagnosis. I'll always start them with a bladder diary, um, especially to identify what foods or fluids they might be putting in that could be um, aggravating the bladder symptoms, um, as well as they'll track their bowel movements. And so if they're having pain there and maybe they didn't realize it, that might be associated, um, on that bladder diary, they are recording kind of how much they're putting in. They count in seconds, how much fluid is coming out with urination. Um, they'll tell me if they're having urgency kind of on a mild, moderate, severe range, um, they'll let me know how much pain they're having with the bladder filling on the zero to 10 scale, zero being none, 10 being the worst pain imaginable. Um, and then they'll bring that back to me on that seventh day once it's fully completed. And then we do a thorough assessment of that bladder diary to really pinpoint the different um, possible aggravating factors. And one commonality that I have found with many of these individuals is lack of water intake for obvious reasons, right? They're already, they're having pain with the bladder filling. They're already having that increased frequency. And so they begin to limit the amount of water that they're having. Um, and then a huge educational point comes in in the regards of if you're not having fluid in your bladder, that in itself is a bladder irritant. And yes. just having that conversation and education on how much fluid they really should be having, especially if they are that individual that, you know, I just can't kick that cup of coffee in the morning, you know, educating on if you're having coffee, then we need to have either that pre-leaf or excessive water amounts after that to help dilute what's in the bladder to decrease that acidity going on. Definitely. I think getting it diluted makes a huge 
a huge difference. And also it helps avoid constipation. Like you said, some women don't realize it, but the constipation can flare and trigger things. So, and we know that if you're dehydrated, you're going to be more constipated as well. And then the conversation on fiber comes in. I think, you know, there are so many different fibers out there. And if people aren't um, knowledgeable on the different fibers and they're constipated and they come in, they tell me they're taking Metamucil. I'm like, oh, that's the wrong fiber. (laughs) We have soluble and we have insoluble fibers. And so really having that right conversation on which fiber is the right fiber for you, depending on what kind of bowel movements irregularities are occurring in order to make the right recommendation that's going to help them move in the correct direction rather than the opposite way. Definitely. One other um, uh, over-the-counter thing I didn't mention and I think can make a big difference is aloe. Um, I think there's one desert aloe or desert harvest aloe. I can't remember, but I do think aloe can help with the bladder as well. That is really good to know. So knowing that you kind of talked about different medications, will you talk to our listeners now about um, the installation procedure? What is that? Um, How often do they come? What are you instilling in their bladder? And what does that procedure kind of look like? Definitely. So one of the thoughts about what um, leads to the pain with interstitial cystitis is if there's a breakdown in the protective layer inside the bladder called the glycosaminoglycan layer, or we call it the GAG layer. And it's kind of a mucousy protective layer against the acidic urine in the bladder. And we think that something can break down this protective layer microscopically, and that allows the acidity of the urine to seep a layer deeper and then stimulate the nerves of the bladder in a negative way and cause the urgency and the pain. So the thought is that if we can put something into the bladder to try and theoretically, quote, plug those holes, that that can help um, improve the bladder symptoms. So we instill heparin in the bladder, and you might recognize the name heparin as a blood thinner because it can use be used intramuscularly or intravenously to thin the blood. But when we use it uh, in the bladder, it doesn't thin the blood. We just uh, think that it helps to plug those holes. And they actually hold it for about an hour and then just urinate it out at home. So we um, put a small little catheter into the urethra, squirt the medication in, and then take the catheter out and then let them go home. We also put a numbing medicine called lidocaine or marcaine in with the heparin. And for some people, it just having the catheter placed through the urethra flares their symptoms too much. And so we wouldn't use this medication for those people. But usually we find that after four treatments, and we do it once a week, after four treatments, people will start to have an improvement. If they don't, then it's not a modality we use because we don't use everything for everybody. But we usually use use it once a week for eight weeks. And then if it does help, we kind of taper them down to once every other week for a couple of treatments, then once a month. And then we go down from there. I do have some patients we actually teach to do it to themselves and they can administer the medication at home if they like to. And sometimes they use it when they're having a bad day, they can just give themselves a rescue dose. So we just try to tailor it to the patient specifically. 
That is great. I, I don't think I knew that um, you could teach them how to do it by themselves. That makes great sense, especially in our area when maybe you're treating rural patients that are driving a few hours in and once you know it works and it's not really ideal for them to come every other week into the into the valley. That's That's really cool to know that they can have more independence with that kind of home program. Mm-hmm. And now what are any negative side effects that can come from this installation? Probably the, the urethral pain from having the catheter placed. And luckily that's in a smaller uh, percentage of people. And then um, there is always a small chance of getting a bladder infection, of actually getting a true bladder infection because of the catheter going into the urethra. You know, no matter how uh, careful we are in uh, cleansing the area before we place the catheter, sometimes just passing the catheter through the urethra, there might be some bacteria in there that gets pushed into the bladder and they might get a bladder infection. But those really are the two, um, the two problematic um, results that we know of. Great. And now are there any other treatment approaches that you would use prior to going the interstim direction? Um, we do use medications for uh, overactive bladder for urinary frequency and um, often we'll give them a trial of those. Uh, there is also Botox that we inject in the bladder in some cases, but we do have to evaluate them prior because one of the negative aspects of Botox is it can work too well to where someone won't be able to urinate. And that would be um, definitely something we want to avoid. Um, after that, though, there is the interstim implant, and it's a, neuro, a way to do neuromodulation. There is definitely a less invasive neuro, neuromodulation called posterior tibial nerve stimulation, where we do it in the office with just a tiny little acupuncture type needle. And we have them come once a week for 12 weeks and then once a month if it helps. And they sit for 30 minutes while we stimulate their nerve and see if this helps them. So that is an option. It's mainly to treat the frequency and urgency of urination. And we use it for people with just plain ordinary overactive bladder as well. The interstim is a more is a permanent implant. And it's kind of like a pacemaker for the bladder. And I have found that it works extremely well in some cases. Um, it, again, it's not for everybody, but we do do a trial with the interstim where we implant the electrode and attach it to a temporary wire that comes out through the body. And they wear it on a little belt around their waist for one to two weeks and actually try the stimulation and see if it makes a difference. And if it does, then we actually implant a tiny little battery. It's about as big as a thumb drive. And we implant that in the upper hip area. And then they can talk to it with something that's kind of like a cell phone, Bluetooth through the skin. And it really makes an improvement for some patients. Again, it's not for everybody, but it is one of those options we have to try and treat symptoms. And now, will you describe to our listeners kind of the mechanics behind neuromodulation? Like, what is it doing? What nerves are you really targeting um, in order to affect the bladder? 
um, we are affecting the S3 nerve roots and we're just trying to change the sensation so that the brain and bladder can talk in a more uh, normal fashion so that they're not feeling that urgency to urinate all the time. And um, it, because the same nerves or similar routes go down to the big toe. Sometimes they'll feel it in their foot a little bit. So we try to change that so that they don't feel the stimulation down there as much, but we like them to feel a tapping sensation or a kind of a gentle buzzing sensation in, we call it the bicycle seat area. So anywhere from uh, like the pubic bone back to the um, sits bones or the coccyx. Great. And then what are some of the precautions and healing implications with this procedure? I would imagine like they probably can't have an MRI anymore. Um, And then obvious precautions in regards to maybe bending or twisting or lifting based on the implant itself. Um, The great news is that the company I um, Uh, use their product. They just came out in July with an MRI compatible device. So for 20 years, I've been telling people, you know, I think this would be good, but you can't ever have an MRI of your, from the neck down to your knees. And anyway, um, so now I can really recommend it more freely. And in fact, I have a patient who's a social worker down in, um, Southern Utah, and she just underwent this treatment. And she used to be getting up five or six times a night to urinate. And during her two-week trial, even after the first few days, she called me and she said, I want this implanted. She was so thrilled. Um, She was able even one night to sleep through the night. And besides the wonderful or the wonderful treatment of her frequency and urgency, she had the benefit that it also helped her pain. And so she was so sad she hadn't done it 10 years earlier. But then I said, the good news is you got the MRI compatible one. (laughs) Yes, that's great. And now with those maybe older implants, how long do they last for? How long do those batteries work? When do like, how often do those need to be replaced? So the battery, and we still do the, um, the regular size battery too, or the rechargeable one. The regular size battery is about the size of two silver dollars taped together. And it has to be changed in the operating room as an outpatient surgery about every five to six years, depending on how it's utilized. Um, The new rechargeable battery is about the size of a thumb drive. And so you can barely feel it under the skin. And they do have a pad that they have to attach around their hip that they um, recharge it for about 30 minutes once a week. So they have either of those options and both are MRI compatible, which is great. And then I would imagine from a physical therapy standpoint, we definitely want these patients letting us know that they have it because we would want to avoid electrical stimulation around that area of that posterior hip where it's located, um, as well as like the low back area. You got it. Exactly. But as far as activity and such, once it's implanted, um, they can really resume their usual activity. The only thing that I tell them they can't do, which I learned recent, uh, rather recently, is scuba diving. You can't go below 30 feet scuba diving. So you can snorkel, but no scuba diving. 
<laughs> that's great that's that is kind of a random thing to learn <laughs> it is random <laughs> uh and the interesting thing that you noted earlier too being that posterior tibial nerve um innervation i was at the combined sections meeting two years ago in washington dc and attending um a pelvic floor lecture through the electrical stimulation section and they've actually been doing some new research on that and so in the clinic here after we have done different pelvic floor therapies, whether it be tender point release intravaginally or dilators or different stretching techniques. Um, at the end of treatment, we will have the individuals lay on our treatment table and we will do posterior tib tens to that area to at least kind of help simmer down the nerves. Uh -huh. But after kind of talking with you, one of our therapists here is dry needle certified. I'd be interested to have him try that because um, it's the same type of needle that you had discussed. It's a similar to an acupuncture needle. And he also has electrical stimulation that he can attach to these needles. I'd be interested to see um, if his coursework involved that nerve or if there's extra coursework in order to do that so that maybe we can treat these individuals with posterior tib stimulation in this outpatient type of a physical therapy clinic as well. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, that would be interesting because we could certainly, um, come together on that. I'd be happy to show him our little diagram on how we put the needle in. And then the patients usually will feel, a uh, vibration in their feet and sometimes it will make their toes curl down. Okay. That would be great. Yeah, that would be really awesome. So any of those dry needle certified patients or therapists out there that are listening to this, maybe um, get with your local urologist and maybe learn this technique. So um, then, you know, maybe patients, because obviously urologists, especially Dr. Stout being the first female therapist and urologist in the state of Utah is a pretty busy woman. And so being able to maybe have these patients have that procedure and an outpatient to allow more clinic time for other procedures might really be helpful in that multimodal um, treatment approach. Definitely. That's great. And then kind of from a pelvic floor standpoint, what we do with our interstitial cystitis patients um, from a very conservative standpoint is we'll do different visceral mobilizations along the abdomen to release any adhesions that might be um, musculoskeletal or visceral connections to the bladder. Um, we'll do different pelvic floor techniques if it is found during an evaluation that there are tender points or shortened muscles. Um, and if they are experiencing painful intercourse, we will proceed through dilator training in order for that individual to tolerate penetration of a dilator similar to the size of their partner in order to achieve penetrative intercourse again without pain. Um, and then really teaching them how to do these different techniques on their own with their own dilator set at home. There's also different um, techniques out there that you can utilize what's called a pelvic wand where they can do their own tender point release. So the therapist will teach them how to use that device and send them home with it, make sure that they're effective with it. So then when they do maybe have a flare up every once in a while, they don't feel like they need to come back to the clinic, but they can treat those specific tender points on their own as well. That sounds wonderful. No wonder we love sending our patients to you. 
(laughs) I think the biggest takeaway is definitely working collaboratively. You know, we all have our specialty areas and knowing that um, I see specifically is a very complex condition and, you know, um, our urologists can treat it from that standpoint and maybe that won't resolve every problem regarding the pelvic floor. And so then we need to refer as well as vice versa for those pelvic therapists out there. If you're seeing a patient and those painful bladder symptoms are not resolving and they haven't tried all of these other options with the urologist, please, please refer them out so they can try um, this installation. And if that's not working, go the more aggressive route with posterior tib or the um, inner stim placement device. And just know that there is so many different treatment approaches out there for the plain painful bladder syndrome or interstitial cystitis that you don't need to suffer in pain um, and, and keep trying different options until you find the one that really works for you. Wonderful. And I need to make one little correction because I told you the PTNS, I called it posterior tibial nerve stimulation. I think it stands for actually percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. Right. Just to let you right. know. Yes. That go. is a good Just correction. Just to be correct. There. Sorry. Yes. No, that's perfect. <laughs> um, and I know kind of preparing for this podcast, there are numerous research articles out there in regards to um, both the posterior tibial nerve um, percutaneous stimulation, as well as the neuromodulation with the inner stim device um, that both have great research, randomized controlled trials that validate the success rates of these devices. Yep, I agree. Well, Dr. Stout, if nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this discussion? Well, I want listeners to be validated, to know that it's not all in their head. If you can believe it, years ago, they used to tell women it's all in your head, which is so infuriating. So it's not not all in your head. There are things that can be done. Um, There are many ways we can try to attack this problem and just find a provider that is familiar and eager to help you. Great. Well, thank you for listening. If you'd like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Dr. Stout for coming on the show today. And Dr. Stout, if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Uh, My office number is 801-266-8664. And both I and my nurse practitioner, Karen Waskovich, um, are eager to help you and give us a call and we'll get you in. Great. Thank you again for listening and please tune in for next month's episode on C-sections. And please remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. Thanks. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast 
without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.